CEOs Speak is an exclusive BitBeam podcast series featuring interviews of hundreds of skilled and talented CEOs who share their strategies for leading some of the country's most successful companies. Join Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, as he uncovers the heart and soul of today's business leaders. Hey, uh, we are speaking to Nick Rand, CEO of HomeVise of America, a company that combines technology with a savvy about real estate and also a savvy about understanding the human side, the human equation in buying and selling homes. Uh, welcome aboard. Uh, Thank you, Charlie. You know, Good to be here. Curious. You know, you're leading a company, uh, and I always like to look backwards. I, I'm curious as to who the real person is that's leading the country to get to understand him, because I think that the CEO makes a company, and not the company makes the CEO. So usually I like to start <laughs> with uh, your, your youth, going back to your elementary school, your grade school days, and I'm curious you went in a certain direction, you're in real estate. What inspired you? What motivated you? Were your parents in real estate? Were they in technology? Were you, or you were just good at playing Monopoly and getting boardwalked all the time? <laughs> well, you know, I, I tell my kids that one of the greatest gifts I had was growing up poor. Um, I never had a silver spoon. Uh, so I think that gives you a certain level of motivation you need to be an entrepreneur and creativity. You have to, you know, they say necessity is the mother of all invention. I would believe that. So growing up, um, you know, my parents got divorced when, uh, I was six months old. And so my mom was taking care of all four of us. And, um, you know, she, she lived in New York. Uh, we grew up a little bit in New York before moving to Connecticut. And so we were, um, uh, we're poor. Um, and I, I actually say we, we're a po. Uh, we couldn't even fo- afford the OR. So mm-hmm. we were, we were on welfare all of our growing up years, section eight housing. Uh, we got, we're on the WIC program. We got government cheese. Yeah. We're one of those folks and, um, food stamps. And, um, so just, you know, we need to hustle just to survive. So me and all my siblings, uh, there are four of us. I was the youngest of the four. Um, we just all just, a whole growing up years, we were always hustling, you know, finding ways to make money and, um, cause we had to, um, my, my mom would, you know, basically cover our, our bare necessities, but if we wanted nice clothes or, you know, uh, um, you know, video games when I was younger or, you know, computers or, or whatever, um, you know, cars when we, when we got a little older, you know, we had to, um, make our own money and make it happen. Um, you know, we kind of grew up early on realizing there was no free lunches. No one's going to, um, uh, give me a handout and, and make my success. Um, kind of realize the, the cold reality of this world we live in. You, you have to hustle and make it happen. No one's just going to hand it to you. And so, um, so that, you know, so we, we, we all learned to work really hard at a young age and I was working. I got my, I got my first business when I was nine years old. Do you, you want to hear what it is? I'm ready. I'm listening. So I, I, um, it was one of the best businesses ever. I was collecting cans. We would dumpster hop. We'd go in and it was five cents a can. I think I paid a little more for a bottle. And, um, that's what we do. Like, I thought this is the greatest gig. Um, if got a big dumpster bag, we'd hop in and fill it up and we'd go to the grocery store and turn it in and get like 10, 20 bucks for a bag and, and they put it through a machine and give you your money. And, um, it was tax free. Um, I was my own boss and it was great. And so I made some money that way. 
And so if we wanted to go to the movies or do something fun or go to the game room, we would, that's what we do, collect some cans and make some money. And we just, you know, we knew we couldn't whine about the fact that we didn't have money. We just, you know, that wasn't going to do any good. We just had to hustle and, and make it happen. And so that was my first business venture at nine. And then at 11, um, got a paper route. And I don't think those exist anymore, but we, uh, del- del- delivered papers, you know, before school at, you know, get up at five in the morning and did, did la- our own landscaping business. My brother and I, um, over the summer, um, and when I was 13, I started washing dishes. So uh, I worked at Michael's pizza under the table and I uh, was a Greek, Greek, uh, pizzeria and they're no longer in business, but, um, yeah, I worked, worked there and, and washed dishes and I used to pull those plates out of the Hobart dishwasher. They come out super hot and, you know, the hands were burning after picking them up and you had to bring them to the racks. And, uh, after a while you didn't feel the heat anymore because your hands were numb. And so we, uh, did that for a while and washed. Then we waited tables. Um, you know, I, I, I did that through my high school years and in college, kind of worked our way through college. But those are all just some of the different things we did. Let me, let me ask you, there are many people who grew up in your circumstances, uh, poor, and <clears throat> but you seem to have an initiative, a drive, and uh, your brothers. Did that come from your folks? Did that come from your parents? I mean, was it instinctive? Was it in your DNA? Like, I'm just thinking to myself as you talk, there are many stories of a similar nature in people growing up in, in, uh, in financially, uh, poor circumstances, but they never really made it as you have made it. They didn't have the drive. And this first where that drive comes from. Well, yeah, and and uh, I don't fault any of those people. I found, you know, growing up uh, under those circumstances, there are two types of people. There's one one type that says, well, my mom and my dad are poor, therefore I'm just going to end up like them, and there's nothing I can do about it. They just kind of give in, and they have a, a victim mentality. And there are others who say, hey, you know, I watch my parents struggle. I watch them grow poor. I'll never grow up poor. I'll never collect a welfare check. I'll rather – you know, die trying than, than, than collect a, a handout, government handout. And so those are two kind of people you have. And, and some, you know, usually the, you know, the, the ones who, the latter side, they, they, they grow up really successful. They, they hustle, they figure it out and, and they figure out a, a unique education that, that no one in school gets taught. You know, you just learn how to, you get your kind of your street smarts. Um, and so I thank God for that. I would never, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I'm just curious, and this is really more a sociological or psychological question. What yeah. divides those two types that you that you defined? In other words, okay, we have one people who say, my parents are poor, I'll be poor. And then the other one says, I'll never be poor like my parents. And, and this is not uh, necessarily the point of this conversation at all. It just aroused my curiosity. Of why one person head off in one direction, the other one, and the other one, and and, well, I, and the reason why I'm reflecting on that is I'm thinking of mother of the Methodists, and uh, I'm not familiar that much with the Methodist uh, philosophy and approach to life, except that perhaps there's a certain sense of responsibility of doing things, of getting things done. Perhaps I, I'm just throwing that out as the thought. Well, you know, I, I think there's a few things at play, and, and I'll just tell you, for me, um, you know, I had, had a great mother, and she was clean. Um, she's just she's super honest, and um, although she didn't 
work, uh, she, her job was kind of taking care of the four of us. And, um, I never saw her go out and, and get a job and, and work. Um, so I, I didn't learn from my parents, but she, um, she was always really honest and took really good care of us. Very, I grew up in a loving home and she was encouraging and, um, she didn't tell me to go out and get a job and do all those things that we did. Um, in fact, sometimes she'd try to discourage us, but I just think having, peaceful home and, and just, uh, I, I don't know. Um, and not, be, you know, having an abusive home. Um, and I mean, some people maybe do some, uh, abusive nature of their home. Maybe they just kind of gave up early on. So thank God, um, that, you know, that never happened to me. And I, I just think honestly, some people grow up are just born, just kind of motivated and some aren't. Um, and I don't think you can really explain it, uh, exactly, yeah. but you just kind of, you, you have, you know, since you're a little kid, you see some kids are just, they hustle and they do well in sports and other areas and others don't. And I just don't know how that works. You, you went from those <coughs> entrepreneurial, uh, uh, jobs that, and you used, you went to college. You got a degree in technology, I believe. Uh huh. Business and technology. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you started working for a company and you started learning about real estate. Mm-hmm. And found you like real estate, and you saw a very big opportunity, and you started on the side, on your own time, creating a company called Home Buyers of America. I'm not sure if you called it at that time, but you were doing House that Buyers of America, yeah. The House uh-huh. Buyers, I'm sorry, House Buyers okay. of America. And, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not, and one thing that struck me immediately is that and you went uh, from zero to uh, 50 million in three years, which is quite an accomplishment. What, what struck me is that it's a multifaceted type of a business. You have to know the financial side, the investment side. You have to know real estate well. You have to know buying and selling real estate. You have to know uh, technology. And at a very, almost from the get-go, you were in command of all those different disciplines. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, and when I got into this business, I knew none of those. Um, I, I went to business school. Um, I was in sales for my first three years out of business school for CACI marketing, did really well selling software, technology, uh, selling marketing systems. So I had some of that, you know, the technology component and, and marketing and, and I had a background in that. Um, business development. Um, I had the confidence that I could sell, I could get deals done. Um, but you know, I, I didn't, I never, I didn't even own my own house. So January, 2001, when we started buying houses, I was still renting a house. Um, and so I read this book, uh, while I was, uh, you know, uh, working at CACI, it was called rich dad, poor dad, and very famous, one of the number one, uh, personal finance books, um, the last 20 years. And, and, um, and I read that book and it got me really intrigued about real estate. So I started learning more and more. And then we just decided to dive in. My wife got her brokerage license and I, um, and we just started buying houses in, in January 2001. We're now 20 years in business. And, um, and, and so yeah, we just had to learn it and figure it out. And one of the things, uh, they taught us early on is just, you know, get your network of advisors in place. You know, your title company, your attorneys, your, your, um, your, your real estate broker, if you, did, if, if you didn't have your own license and, you know, your, your contractors, your home inspectors, they get all these people, um, you know, in play and, and these, these people would advise you and, and, and help you through the process and you didn't need to know everything. And so I took that to heart. I said, yeah, that makes sense to me. And so that's what 
what we did. We went around and looked for the best people we could find for title companies and real estate brokers and, and contractors and so forth. And we learned as, as we went on and we made a lot of mistakes. Um, but I think what, what served us well was I was very conservative. So I never did crazy deals. I never overpaid for houses. Um, you know, I, I, I knew I, I have a limited amount of capital. I better not blow it. So I, I was very conservative with our deals and, and all of our deals worked. Um, thankfully, um, your first year and, um, I just listened to people. I had to, you know, talk to a lot of people and, and I, I learned a lot from that. And, uh, you just have to have this humility about you to, to, to be able to realize, you know, I don't know everything. And I think one of the things that really, really helped us, uh, Charlie was that, uh, a lot of people, um, who get into business for themselves, they were already in that industry and, you know, they're like, well, this is the way everyone does it. So I'm going to do it the same way. Well, how are you going to be better than other people? How are you going to beat your competition if you keep doing it the same way that everyone else is doing? So I knew nothing about real estate. So I had to learn it from scratch. And we, we looked at everything from a different lens. We were very creative and some of the things we did worked, some failed, but our whole premise of our business is, you know, being able to buy someone's house, uh, as is no realtor commissions, um, bypass the whole, all the middlemen, the traditional process and be able to get an offer in your house right away. Um, you know, that would, that didn't really exist a whole lot when I started. Now you have iBuyers and so forth, but we're like, Hey, we can do this. And we had a lot of people saying that'll never work. You'll never be able to do that as a large scale business, maybe onesie twosie, but you never be able to do that with, and as a high volume business. I said, well, we're going to, we're going to try it. We're going to, you know, and if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. And we believe we can do it. With its technology, what was the technology that you used uh, uh, to facilitate the process? Um, well, um, we built our own, uh, back early on, back our, then, uh, our own access database where, you know, initially it started out as just a simple Excel spreadsheet. We had to, we started buying so many houses, we had to track everything when we were going to buy it, did the title clear, did, you know, all the different aspects of the, of the, of the deal and, and the funding we needed to get the deal done and, and all the closing dates and all the construction dates and, and then turn around and listing the house and reselling it. And so we had to track all that and start as a big, uh, spreadsheet and then we merge into an, an access database that we custom program. And then, um, over time we, uh, realized we, we needed a, a real robust CRM. We had, uh, we used ACT back in the day, ACT software. And, and that was kind of the, before big CRMs were out, that was kind of the, the thing to use, a contact management software. So we, we had some of our homegrown technology and we used some off the shelf kind of products. We realized this, this technology is only going to take us so far. So as we started growing, instead of buying 20 houses a year, we started doing 100, then 200, then 300 houses a year very quickly in our first three, four years in business. So we need a more robust system to handle all this. And so we kept developing our own technology. And now today we have cloud-based systems all custom developed and our own construction management solution. Um, that, that we use in our own, all of our own web technology we build and host on AWS. And so we have all sorts of things now, but you know, it just took time, a lot of trial and error to figure out the right mix of technology. Your business is predicated, as I understand, on obviously it's buy low, sell high, which means that, uh, you're buying a house as is. So there are two factors. One is you have to foresee that if you improve it, what the value will be and all the margins there and where the market is going and in general. 
that's one side of it, the forecasting. The other part of it is just understanding remodeling a home and what it takes and what the cost should be and how to do it correctly. Uh, so they're really two different sides. Is everything learned through speaking to other people? I mean, did you have a hands-on involvement? Yeah, um, well, there's that and, and read. I you know, read a lot of books too and, and I would listen to different real estate courses and, and teach you different components, some on, on the renovation side, some on, uh, the, how to value the properties. And we, you know, as, as we started to succeed, um, you know, I, I always tell people, if you know basic algebra, you can buy and sell houses. Um, it's not rocket science, you know, uh, yeah, I had to take econometrics classes and calculus in college and you don't need any of that for buying houses. You know, it's, it's basic math, but you have to understand, I guess you have to, uh, be, be, I guess pragmatic and realistic. Um, most investors where they make their mistake, Charlie, is they overinflate the value of the house and they underestimate the repair costs. Um, that's what, I was, that's what I was driving at. And it's more of an emotional thing. It's not that they're, they're you know, it's not very smart people who've done real estate deals and, and where they blow it is, you know, they, they're just so eager to do a deal. They just put on their rosy color glasses and they, and they try to make it work and, and you try to fit a square peg in a round hole and it just doesn't work. And so you have to be realistic and, and be able to say no. Um, I've had to say no to thousands of deals. Um, it just didn't make any sense. And, um, most people, they, they do the opposite. They, you know, they figure I've, I've got to make a deal happen to keep my business going and they end up paying the price for it later on. And so you just have so to be you, practical. You deal directly with the homeowner, right? Uh huh. And the homeowner, how do they even calculate what the value of the home is in a realistic way? Where do they so start we, from? So, you know, a lot of them just, I mean, a lot of them know just from being living in the area and talking to friends and so forth. And, and so, um, you know, we, we go and we have access to all the databases out there. And within 10 minutes, we tell, we can get you a ballpark offer on your house and, and just see if we're in the ballpark. And then if, if we are, then we could go and meet them at their house and, and, um, and we, we make, you know, we sit down and explain all the paperwork and the process and so forth. And so, uh, we, you know, we try to, you know, make the, the most competitive offer we can. Um, and so we look at all the similar properties in the neighborhood and, and the size, the square footage, the room count, the style of the home. And, um, and based on, you know, what, what they tell us about the, the condition of the property, we estimate the repairs and, um, you know, and, and, and that's pretty much it. It's pretty simple. And, uh, so they, you know, some people we talk to, they, they, they have an overinflated view of what their house is worth and others, um, are very realistic and, you know, and, and so, you know, um, but we try to get the most competitive and, and offers are, are very competitive. And I think that's how we bought so many houses, thousands of houses over the years because, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty competitive offer. So if someone would ha- were to ha- have to go out and do the repairs themselves, which by the way, they'd probably pay double what we would pay because we have volume contracts for everything. So, you know, we, we, um, you know, we, we can, we can get the repairs done very quickly and, 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 uh, inexpensively. Um, and so if they were to do that, do the repairs and hire an agent, pay them 6% and all the fees that are associated with it and, you know, all the marketing expenses, then, you know, they wouldn't be too far off from what we would offer. And so some people who are, you know, people who are realistic and understand that and don't want to deal with the hassle, then they, they move forward with us. Now you have the house and now you've got to find a buyer. 
and hopefully you want to do it as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. It sort of means you have to understand the movement in the market, and then somebody has to sit down with that buyer and, and work out the deal with them. You have people in place in every location. That uh, How does that work? Yeah, so we have people that deal with the acquisitions, you know, we call them uh, real estate consultants, and we have disposition consultants that do deal with the out-sales side, the you know, selling of the property. And we have a team that deals with the construction side, project managers, purchasing managers, estimating the repairs, hiring the contractors, doing all the paperwork, um, you know, and uh, managing the people in the field, visiting the houses every day while they're under construction. So we have all those teams in place. Everyone specializes in what they do. And that's something I learned early on. Um, I find a lot of these small investors, um, they want to do everything. You know, the guy who's making the deal is also the guy swinging the hammer. Um, you know, and, and, and they tried, you know, be jack of all trades. And, um, I, I learned early on uh, that, you know, you, you can't be jack of all trades and be good at, really good at anything. So in order to be the best at what you do, you have to have specialized people in your company to do, you know, one focused thing and, and do it the, the very best. And that's what we do. So our construction is top notch. Our, 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 our marketing is top notch. Our, our sales process is top notch. Our transaction management is top notch because we, we hire specialists in, in each of those areas. That makes sense. So you're front loading a lot of expenses. You're, you're, uh, obviously the purchase price of the home, the repairs. You have, uh, either, I'm not sure, are they employees or on commission to do the buying and selling, the marketing mm-hmm. and so on. So you really have to be very, in tune with the margins and, and, because in a certain way, is I wouldn't call it Russian roulette, and I'm, I'm not even going to say it's rolling the dice, but you don't know for sure how it's going to turn out or how long you want to hold on to it before you sell. So you really have to be very sensitive and keen on your margins, I expect. Absolutely. And, and yeah, especially when you're working on thin margins, you, you have to have a very, um, uh, efficient and accurate due diligence process. So we have the, I believe, the, the best due diligence process in the country. We've done so many of these deals and been doing this for 20 years. And you know your neighborhoods, you learn them, but you just learn how to read the numbers and um, and don't overinflate things. If the numbers tell you a story, whether you personally emotionally believe that this is a great deal or not. You listen to the numbers and you've got to get good at that. And we have a risk management. So every deal gets vetted um, before uh, we actually acquire the property and, and just make sure that there was no human error involved. So with our software and our systems that we use for evaluating the property and then our, 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 uh, our due diligence uh, process and, and, you know, and, and, uh, and risk management, we, we hardly ever lose uh, money on deals. Um, we just, you know, we, we, we work really hard not to do that. We've learned the hard way. We've, believe me, in the past, we've lost, uh, money on plenty of deals, but, you know, like everyone else, but you, hopefully over time, you learn from that and, and you get better at it. Do you use, uh, are you self-funded or you have to reach out to investors? Yes. <laughs> Both. Yeah, we, we, we self-fund and um, we have uh, investment capital as well, private lenders, and we have bank lines of credit. So he's all the above. What's interesting to me, because I know quite a number of people in the real estate business, and they always have their eye for something bigger. 
And for 20 years, you've been doing this model, and it seems that that's the model you want to stick with, rather than saying, okay, we know real estate well, we understand how to calculate and go through all the processes required. Let's move on to uh, multiplexes. Let's move on to shopping centers. Let's move on to uh, bigger scale things where perhaps the margins are even bigger. You don't seem to have such an inclination. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. And, and, um, I, you know, I, I learned early on, um, from one of, one of the real estate uh, workshops I took is that, you know, another successful real estate investor said, look, what, the biggest mistake he saw a lot of people early, you know, early on in their real estate investing careers, they do a few deals, a few house deals, and boom, they're ready to become, you know, big commercial, uh, real estate developers. And, um, and it's just, just, I don't know, hubris, I guess. You, 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 and, and, you know, what he explained to me was you want to get the business down to science. So it becomes almost boring. And then you can just expand very rapidly that way. Um, and instead, a lot of people, they, they get bored of residential housing, so they want to jump into commercial. And they get their clock cleaned, and then they never go back in real estate investing. They're, they're out of the market. And so, you know, with, with me, what keeps me excited in the business um, isn't just the buying and selling of houses, but just the fact that we can scale this very easily and go into other markets because we have the system down to science. We're really good at it. We have the best software and technology. And, and that excites me to be able to bring this all across the U.S. Um, and so, you know, you can get bigger by buying bigger properties and commercial properties and office and warehouses and so forth. Um, or you can get big by just buying a, a higher volume of houses. And that's what we decided to do. Um, cause we're good at it. We know, I know very little about buying an office building and renting it out. I'm sure I could learn it. Uh, but it'd be a huge distraction right now for me to go into that space and learn, learn a brand new space. Well, I'd rather, grow this into 10 other markets by the time I've bought one or two buildings. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Well, something in, uh, when that uh, advisor mentioned about being a science and that you mentioned having a scale, I was thinking that you know, my career is advertising uh, Madison Avenue. Many years ago, I was working on a project with somebody who was involved with franchises. And he was involved with Century 21, and he said to me, you know, Charlie, you take Mo and Shirley, who has a little real estate uh, business, and you put a red jacket on them, and now they're a whole different league and a whole different image and so on. Uh, and you put Century 21 behind them. Have you thought, uh, now that you have the knowledge and you have it down to a science, of turning it into a franchise? You know, I've, people have been asking me that the last 20 years, and, you know, for some reason I've just never been interested in the franchise model. I'm sure, you know, we would work very well. Um, but um, I think we have control over the process the way that a franchise model wouldn't. And, um, you know, I, I, there, there's one franchise in, in our business, and um, we, we beat them in every market we're in. And so I, I think part of that is you control the marketing, control the process. And um, so we, we just want to keep it in-house and just keep growing it uh, internally. Yeah. And, uh, excuse me. McDonald's always said they would rather hire a farmer to run a McDonald's than run a, a professor. 
And the reason why is because a farmer will pretty well do, they've already worked out the process and what the hamburger should be and how much meat should be in the hamburger and, and what the bun should be. They just need someone to follow through. But when they deal with somebody who's a professor, he brings in his own ideas and he's thinking <laughs> and, and, so on, and, you know, and everything goes kebab. So I think and I, I, what I can understand in your business is that because it's not a finite, even though it's a science, as you said, there's always room for that person out there, the franchisee, to think about it in his own direction. Because there's always variables, and and like you said, you know, you've got to trust the numbers, but they may put on rose glasses and say, you know, it's really take off, and they throw the whole things uh, off the track. So there is a risk, certainly, in your business, because it's more open to uh, outside impact on, on, on the process. Right. What's also interesting to me is that it is a multifaceted business, Renton. You're the, uh, the founder and the CEO. You're wearing many hats. Uh, how does that work? Uh, how do you do? Uh, uh, you learned a lot. You're struggling with different people. Are you essentially the go-to guy for every aspect of it uh, uh, in, in, uh, in every part of the deal? In the sense that there's a crisis or a question, or do you have other people who handle certain things and they may answer to you, but you're not really hands-on on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Well, well, you know, I never would have been able to scale from zero to 50 million, um, in annual revenue and bought, you know, bought hundreds of houses. Um, I think our th- for third year in business, we did 250 houses. I never could have done that if everything was going through me. And so I had to learn to be ruthlessly efficient and delegate, um, right, right from day one, because I had a full-time job. So my first nine months of business, um, you know, January through September or through August of 2001, I was working full time. I would come home, you know, and work the business for, you know, about four or five hours and go to bed and, you know, do the same thing the next day. And, and so, um, I actually hired my first employee, uh, before I, I quit my job. And so, you know, uh, this person would come in the morning in the basement of my house where he'd work out of my house while I was at work and she, and uh, I would come home and she'd still be there and we would debrief on the day. And, but I, I couldn't do it all. So I had to have someone managing the transactions and dealing with the buyers and sellers and, and title companies and so forth. And so that was early on. And then, so I, I learned that, uh, the necessity of delegating a lot, as much as I could in order to scale, because it worked really well the first year. We bought like 28 houses, I think, the first year, um, you know, part-time, basically. Um, and, you know, it was just me, and, and I had to hire contractors and some employees to do that. And so, um, to, you know, fast forward today, we've just, you've know, done more and more of that. We have, we've broken up teams that handle specific functions and, you know, people that handle the day-to-day construction and, um, deals and, you know, um, uh, you know, just about everything, you know, accounting, the, 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 uh, the, the out sale, the purchasing, um, you know, all the settlement process, uh, start to finish. And I don't pick up a phone and talk to customers very often. Um, and I don't, I've, you know, I don't go to settlements. Um, and I don't go on the job looking at houses. Um, I've got people that do that. Uh, but we, but what I work on most, um, getting back to the leadership aspect is, is the system. 
and I learned early on, um, I forgot the name of the book. It was, um, um, it was a book on, on, on building a business and uh, you know, how to build a business. I think it was called the E-Myth. E-Myth right, it was a really right. good book. Yeah. And, um, it talks about you, you work on your business, not in your business. There's a big difference. And I didn't understand that at first. Well, what do you mean work on your business instead of in your business? And he's saying, you know, don't do the day-to-day work, you know, spend most of your time working on the systems and how things should be done and the process and, 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 and kind of like a franchise model and, and run it as though you're going to launch a franchise and have ex- everything documented, all the processes, all the policies, all the procedures and make sure everyone is singing the same tune. And we've been doing that since day one. I really took that to heart and it's really helped us out in spades. We do everything. We, we know what works and what doesn't work and we don't want to repeat our same mistakes. So we, we, we document the process. We systematize it. We build in our technology and make sure things are done a certain way. That makes sense. You mentioned in our interview the, the recession in 18, 2018 and the recession in your business, was it, uh, you're not dealing with the high end of the, you're not dealing with mansions. You're, you're dealing, from what I understand, is more low to, I wouldn't say lower, but to say middle class homes. Uh, how impact, where was the impact on, on, on the market during that time from the recession? People or jobs, I mean, uh, wouldn't it make it more to your advantage that this, more opportunity during the recession where people talking about the great recession 2008 yeah yeah, yeah well it, it, there's opportunity there's also a lot of struggle so it depends on kind of where you were at when the when the recession hit so we were buying a lot of houses um i think we're at you know we got up to 300 houses a year and spread out over five states and as we started launching new markets, um, we, we went to the fastest growing markets. So Tampa and Orlando were two of the fastest growing back then. But we had 145 houses in our inventory at the time the market crashed. So yes, there's opportunity on the other side, but it's, it's getting to the other side that, that, that's that, that transition period that was a real struggle for us and a lot of companies and, and most of our competitors, quite frankly, just didn't make it. They, they were dropping like flies. Um, and so what, with, with these 145 houses, you're, you have an asset now that's depreciating or that, you know, declining in value very rapidly. And, um, and so we had to move them quickly. And, uh, you know, looking back, I think we made all the right moves. So we, we moved fast. We didn't want to uh, wait and hope the market got better. Some people had wishful thinking, oh, the market's going to bounce back. Well, how's it going to bounce back? We're going to, you know, First, you have to understand what caused the market to decline. You know, the subprime crisis, it's not bouncing back anytime soon. It's going to take years to, to ravel through that. So we said, okay, we just have to make the tough cuts and drop our prices and move this inventory as fast as possible. And that's what we did. And, and we got rid of, uh, the properties and some we broke even on, some we lost money on, some we made a little bit of money on, but that was tough just getting through that inventory. Then once you're on the other side and, and the you know, the prices are low and basically there are not a lot of buyers. It's a, it's a buyer's market at that time. Um, you know, you can definitely take advantage, but it took a little bit to get the foreclosures to, to get in play. You know, you have to work through the system. A lot of people are in denial. They don't want to go through foreclosure, but eventually it happens. And then you have a flood of foreclosures on the market and then you can, you have some opportunity there. But in the meantime, though, you've got this, you know, one or two year period where, 
you know, people were unrealistic about their sales price. So you'd make them an offer and they either owed too much or they just, they thought they had this overinflated view of what their property was worth. Hey, I bought this house two years ago for $500,000. That's what I want to sell my house for. Well, sorry, your house is worth, you know, 450,000 now or 400,000 now. They, they didn't want to accept that, but it took some pain in the market and took some time before people started to recognize, Hey, I've, I've got to accept a lower offer. So once we got to that point, there was opportunity there and we we're able to buy properties at a reasonable price so we could, we could make a profit on it. And so, yeah, there is definitely opportunity there, but you have to know what you're doing. How does that affect those periods with your investors? Do investors walk away at that time and say, forget it, this is not the time for real estate? You're saying, you know, most investors at that time are real estate investors yeah. or just investors you're, in general? Your investors are people who... Uh, oh, people. Oh, we worked with guys who were, you know, lived, eat, and breathe real, you know, real estate, and they wanted to stay in the game, but they were a lot more selective. So people were funding these type of deals. Um, they wouldn't take just any deal. It had to be a pretty good deal, good margins, and they want you want you to put up more money in the deal. And so you have to have cash. You have to have wherewithal. And they have to trust you. And so because we had done so well, and they saw our deals that were you know were good deals, and we knew what we were doing, uh, we were one of the better operators, or the best in our in our area. Um, you know, it, it wasn't as hard for us to get money. Um, but we did have a, a, a large line of credit with Bank of America at that time. And even though we never missed an interest payment, paid off everything, like we handled everything beautifully during the downturn, um, they cut us off. You know, we finally got, to, you know, we sold off all our inventory and got our balance way down. And then, uh, they said, Hey, thanks for doing such a great job, but, uh, no thanks. And they, they cut us off. And, and meanwhile, other builder clients of theirs were, were just, were, wouldn't pay uh, some of their loans in their communities and they, they cut them loose and, and uh, we weren't one of those. So we, so that was a little challenge and we had to navigate through that. And just like anything, you have to hustle and, and find new investment, new sources of capital to, to get through that. That that was definitely a challenging period of time. And, and where does COVID stand in? Did, did it prepare you for COVID and that you're better equipped to deal and and grab opportunities and and see your way through everything. Yes, yeah. um, you know, early on in COVID, we were concerned it'd be another two thousand eight. You know, we were concerned that this could be the beginning of a long slog. We we just had no idea how COVID would impact housing. I was personally was more concerned. Um, not so much about buyer demand or, or the fundamentals of the market, because I think the fundamental, fundamentals are pretty strong, but it, it's, you know, are people going to be willing to go out and look at houses during COVID? I just thought everyone would just kind of put it, be in a holding pattern for a few months. Not that they decide never to buy a house again, but that, you know, maybe you'd be three months, four months, six months. And during that period of time, we owned houses. What if we couldn't sell these houses for a few months? Um, that was my big concern. And, and, for about a month, it slowed down, and that that was certainly a real concern. But we decided to double down. Everyone was pulling back. Um, you know, even Zillow and Open Door, they stopped buying houses nationwide. They they uh, they cut all their marketing budgets and everything. And, and same with all the small guys. And so we doubled down. We tripled our marketing, and uh, we were buying houses right and left. And um, you know, we figured we'd discount our houses, whatever we needed to, to get them sold. And, 
and it worked. And, and thankfully things turned around and it worked even better once that happened. Uh, to everyone's surprise, things, uh, started picking up again and picked back up to the same old pace it was at pre-COVID. And now we're ahead of the COVID pace, um, you know, the pre-COVID pace. So, uh, who would have thought? But, but yeah, I felt we were very prepared and that we, we'd been down this road before. We knew what to do. We knew how to manage through it. And uh, it gave us that confidence where we could continue to buy houses and continue our marketing and expand our marketing. And so literally for a while, we were the only guys buying houses and at a large scale and marketing and so forth. And, and we took advantage of that. Excuse me. It paralleled very much uh, uh, that contradictory thinking in advertising. Many people, when the market's bad, they cut back on advertising. But the smart ones, they double their advertising because there's a window of opportunity because of the silence of the other, of the competition and they make a bigger impact, have more, there's less clutter in advertising at that time and they make a greater impact. So, you know, the vacuum, uh, the downturn quite often, if you play it right, turns out to be, uh, a gold mine in the long term because you're stepping into a void. And it gives you an opportunity that the others are missing. So, you know, it certainly parallels the best advice in advertising as well. Yeah, so, I love what uh, Warren Buffett says. You know, when when others are fearful, you get greedy. And, and when others are greedy, you should be fearful. It's good advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he knows something about that. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, Sure does. What do you call it? Uh, so I don't have to ask you what keeps you up at night. I'm sure there are things that keep you up at night. Um, you know, um, uh, not a lot, honestly. Um, I've learned to, um, that, you know, things will work out in the end. And I learned through my faith that, uh, you know, trusting uh, in God that he'll see me through and he's seen me through a lot. So I, I think earlier, you know, earlier on in my business, there were things that kept me up at night. And now I just have kind of that peace that, Things are somehow gonna gonna work out in the end, and we're gonna make it through. And um, you know, I, I, I trust myself and our team through all the years we've gone through. So I, I don't know if I can think of one thing that that'll um, that keeps me up at night, um, except you know maybe my kids just making sure that they they do well in in college and don't do anything crazy, don't do you know half the things that I did in college. So maybe that's the only thing that keeps me up at night. Yeah, I'm reflecting back on the very beginning of this conversation, and I wonder if it's translatable or transferable to young entrepreneurs starting off. And I'll explain what I mean. The other day, one of the CEOs I interviewed uh, was an immigrant, Mm -hmm. and he built up a very interesting business in the banking industry, also a technology he introduced. And what I felt there is that he started from a vacuum. He came to America. He had no uh, roots here. There's nothing holding him in place. And, and as you said earlier during the conversation, it wasn't as if this is the way it was done. There was no precedent for him. Mm-hmm. So when, uh, with, uh, with the determination, it was sort of free to take advantage of what America has to offer, that if you – Put the energy behind it, you can make things happening. I'm wondering that concept that you experience of starting, so to speak, in a, you know, in a negative situation, if I use that expression, uh, allowed you to move ahead. And 
How do you how do you transfer that if you were teaching in college, another class of young entrepreneurs going into business, but they came from a solid background, they came from a middle upper class family or, or even wealthier. They never had to want. They never had to worry. They had the spending money. Could they have that? How do they transfer that drive and ambition? <laughs> In other words, is it a question? Is that something that you need the circumstance to create it, and otherwise you never find it, or is it something that could that someone like yourself could spark people in a way that they could understand? What it is that you need to have in order to build uh, a, an empire? Yeah, and that's a really good question. Um, you know, uh, I certainly would have a better answer for you if I was if you if your question was how would I teach a parenting class? Because you know, my kids obviously they you know they've never experienced what we experienced, and they've they've grown up with a, a silver spoon, if you will. But right. um, but with our kids. We don't give them a lot of stuff. You know, we, we make them earn it. So, um, we did things early on, like we'd make them, we pay them for reading, like we pay them five cents a page. And so they wanted a, a, a Wii U way back when. And so made them read. And so over the summer, they read like tons of books and, um, and we, we paid them for that. And so teaching them, you have to earn it. We don't just give you a lot of stuff. So other than birth, birthday and Christmas presents, you know, we, it, that's how we, you know, that's how we teach our kids. Um, I think, you know, I think most Americans are, are pretty motivated. Um, you know, they want a better life for them and their families. Um, you know, they want, there's always a nicer house. If you have a nice house, there's always something nicer. If there's a nice, you have a nice car, there's always a nicer car. Or you, you want your kids to have the best education. There's always something to motivate you to do better, to earn more money. And, um, I think, uh, just some people have the bug and some don't. Some just get it and, and just, I don't know what it is. Um, where they, they grow up in a, with a poor background. Um, some grow up in a wealthier background. I definitely think, um, you know, uh, you know, coming from a, a poor background, you're just naturally more motivated. You're not relying on mom and dad or, or your wealthy family or friends, um, who can help you out in a pinch. You know, you don't have that. You don't have that safety net. So you just have to, you know, really, really make it happen. And, um, you have that kind of extra edge, but you know, there's a lot of successful, um, you know, uh, families, uh, that, you know, where, where they've been able, been able to pass down to the next generation, um, the business and they've taken it to new heights. I think it's just all how you bring, how, how you raise them. So like I said, yeah, I think it's better for like a parenting class. Like how do you raise your kids? By the time you're in college, that's already baked in. And um, if you think mommy and daddy are going to bail you out every time you're in trouble, like that's just, you're never going to make, uh, sorry, I, I don't think they're going to, uh, they don't have uh, the, the inner drive um, to make it. But if you, um, if you just have that kind of that drive to, to make it and, and to make your family proud, your parents proud, and, and you're not relying on a handout, um, you know, I, I think uh, anyone can make it no matter whether you grew up rich or poor. For sure. I certainly hope that because uh, my kids certainly didn't grow up poor and I hope they succeed and I think they will. They work really, they're really hardworking kids. Okay. Final question. What, uh, for the many CEO listeners, what one thought, what one advice would you, would you share? You always tell people, um, you know, two things, you know, stay humble and stay hungry. That's the biggest success principle. Um, you know, no matter how successful you are, just, you know, I always realize there are 
still a lot of people way more successful than me. I can learn a lot. I can learn from anyone. Um, so I'm, it keeps me uh, always asking questions. Um, you know, not just the successful people, but just everyday folks. I can learn from anyone and just stay hungry. You know, um, I always, um, I don't know. That's kind of a natural thing. I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, you always want to grow your business and be more successful. But if you find yourself kind of in a lull and lacking motivation, you just got to find something that keeps you going. Um, you know, whether it's a philanthropic thing, uh, that you want to give to or just, uh, passing something down to your kids or, or, or just growing your business to new heights, whatever it is, you have to have to find something that drives you and motivates you to take your business to your next level. So those are two things I'd leave, leave my, leave the other viewers on. Okay. One interesting question from that. Have you ever thought about, let's say you and your wife sat down and say, you know, if we have this amount of money, we know we'd be comfortable for the rest of our lives. You know, the way we live according to the lifestyle we live and we were comfortable. And what would you do then? Would you want to continue the business because it's in you and you can't let go? Or would you say, no, I, I've got to the point where I've achieved my financial security for the future, and now it's time to move on? Good question. I mean, for, for, for me, I think I'd be bored retirement. I mean, what am I going to do? Watch the grass grow. So I, I, I can't ever see myself like not working at all. I always have to be keep busy doing something. But for us, for my wife and I, we, we do a lot of uh, philanthropic activity. We, we give to a lot of causes that are important to us, you know, primarily, you know, helping uh, poor children and, and developing countries. Um, and we visited them. And, and so that kind of drives us, you know, and, and um, for us, it's not about the money and buying the next car and having a nicer vacation, but it's more about, you know, we can make a big difference. We've seen it. We've been to Africa and different countries in South America. And, well, you know, just even even $30 a month, we've seen how it changes a uh, kid's life. And so if we can make, you know, a few million extra, that can just help a, a lot of people. Like, we have plenty. We don't need any more. Um, but that would always, I think, drive me. So make as much money as I can so I can give away as much as I can. So, you know, as a – I think that is something definitely worth sharing because – I do articles. I'm doing an article on consumerism. And the one thing that's been validated by psychologists and so on, and so on that acquisition of things, extrinsic type of, of, of ownership is very damaging really to the soul. And the deepest sense of fulfillment and, and accomplishment and, and self-satisfaction comes along the lines of what you said. When you share, when you give, when you you reach a deeper spirituality, so yeah. no, absolutely. There's a there's a verse in the Bible that says, "What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul?" And you're right, the stuff will never make you happy. You know, more exactly. stuff, more possessions, exactly. it's, it'll never make you happy. Exactly. Okay, it's been wonderful. This has been a fascinating conversation with Nick Ron of Housewives of America, extremely successful. Uh, and the, the website is housewivesofamerica.com. And I wish you to continue luck for this year and the years to come. Thank you for joining Charlie Katz, our executive extraordinaire, in yet another insightful interview. Be sure to check out more stories from CEOs across the country at bitbean.com forward slash CEOs speak to learn more about what it takes to get to the top and stay there.